Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Five years ago this week, Wales voted to leave the European Union. To reflect on this and the way that Wales has changed since the vote, we are joined by three voices, all from South Wales. Today we are joined by Robert Griffiths, General Secretary of the Communist Party of Britain and former chair of the Lexit campaign. Hi Rob, how are you? Okay, good morning. So obviously we're, we're talking about Brexit and specifically the vote to leave the EU. Can you explain to me a little bit about why you voted to leave? Well, I, I think in taking the position that I took and, and my party, the Communist Party, took, uh, really we'd have to, I won't give you a long history um, lecture, but um, in fact, for many decades, it was the standard position on the left wing of the Labour movement in Wales and Britain to oppose EU membership on the grounds that it was an alliance of the major capitalist uh, and imperialist states of uh, Western Europe, um, a free, uh, an alliance that, um, that had uh, built into its common market arrangements and then the European community and then the European Union, capitalist free market principles, um, in particular the free movement of labor, goods, services, and capital, most importantly. So, uh, you know, not so long ago, it was not at all unusual or, or even a minority position on the left in Wales and Britain to oppose EU membership. And I must say, nothing that's happened in the last 20 or 30 years, certainly not since the, um, the banking bailout and the punishment beatings meted out by the EU to various member states, Nothing's happened in the last 20 years uh, that I think would warrant any revision of that traditional anti-big business, free market EU position. That school of thought was at the time called Lexit. Do you think that was a fair description? And, and do you think that there's still a coalition of people who believe in a left-wing reason for leaving the EU? There, there was a, there was indeed a, a Lexit, the Left Leave campaign, during the EU referendum, and uh, I, I was the chair of the campaign. And yes, we brought together quite a wide coalition of forces on the left, including a number of national uh, trade unions, including a section of the Labour left. One or two of the far left uh, groups took a similar position: the Indian Workers Association, the Bangladeshi Workers Council. Um, and as far as I'm aware, I don't think any of those organisations have changed their view fundamentally of the EU since uh, since the referendum result. I mean, some would argue that Brexit has allowed the UK to adopt an even more neoliberal agenda. You think, no, by the time we have another general election in 2023 <clears throat> or 2024, we would have moved closer to a, an American model of deregulation. So even though I, I understand your reasons for being anti-EU? Has it not had a weird knock-on effect that actually Britain has become more capitalist as a consequence? Well, of course, we've had predominantly neoliberal capitalist politics in Britain since at least the 2010 general election, uh, although Tony Blair was limbering up for that for quite a period. So I don't think anything has really changed significantly since then. I mean, the, 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 the big measures of privatization and deregulation, the anti-trade union laws, all of the other major policies associated with a, an ultra-free market outlook 
Um, those have been introduced in Britain since the 19, 1980s uh, and uh, have continued more or less up to the present day. Of course, being in the European Union didn't protect us against those policies one single iota. So again, I think fundamentally nothing has um, has changed. I mean, it is interesting that a section of the Conservative Party broke away from the the ruling class, the ruling capitalist class consensus in Britain, which of course has been pro-EU for a long time, and most of which remained pro-EU during the referendum campaign, the Institute of Directors, the CBI, the Country Landowners Association, the Engineering Employers Federation, and so on. They were all heavily pro-EU in the referendum campaign. But it's interesting that a section of the Tory party broke away from that consensus. Uh, and and for I think largely for opportunists and for some reactionary reasons, they wanted to be closer to United States. They felt the EU might uh, go onto a collision course with the United States in terms of uh, you know in, in international economic policies and so on. So they did. They took a bit of a gamble. They broke away from the conservative mainstream as it was back in 2016. And uh, they've got away with it. Uh, I think behind the scenes, as an avid reader of the Financial Times, I'm pretty clear about this, behind the scenes, there's been enormous pressure on the Johnson government to try and modify the terms of Brexit, and in particular post-Brexit relations with the EU, to ensure that they're still in keeping with the basic interests of big business. And I think that's been successful if we look at the terms of the trade and cooperation agreement and all of Theresa May's original withdrawal agreement that have been retained. I think the by and large the Johnson government, you know, has attempted to ensure that the main interests of British big business uh, will at least get some uh, defence in the post Brexit situation. So um you know I think I think that's been an interesting feature. And those divisions in the Conservative Party may yet come back to haunt Boris Johnson, of course, because, uh, I mean, don't forget, British big business always wanted it both ways. They, they liked the protection of an ultra-free market, pro-big business EU, but they also like the trading relations and the international diplomat diplomatic and political and military defence of their interests around the world, represented in our, in our relationship with the United States. Um, there are all sorts of contradictions in trying to ride those two horses at once. And I think Johnson may yet come a cropper, um, especially if the EU continues to try and um, penalise the City of London, for example, uh, and to penalise sections of big business. Uh, th those powerful interests in Britain are going to turn around to Boris Johnson and say, you really have not resolved the problems you said you would resolve. So it's, uh, you know, it's very interesting. I, I think it'd be wrong to think that the, the ruling class and the Conservative Party are all united around a single post-Brexit position. The main problem for those of us on the left and those of us in the trade union movement, the labour movement generally, is that, is, is that uh, there's no great consensus and there's certainly no clarity about what the left and the Labour movement should be standing for in Britain uh, and in Wales in relation to, to the post-Brexit scenario. 
we'll, we will get onto that in a bit. But the um, the question I wanted to ask you was going back to the campaign. Did it make you feel uncomfortable at all that you were, albeit for very different reasons, advocating the same thing as people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove? They're not your usual comrades, are they, Rob? Well, they weren't comrades then either because, <laughs> you know, we didn't share any platforms. We didn't share any organisations or any campaigns uh, with the right-wing pro-Brexit movement. Uh, I mean, you know, the point could be made, of course, that all those on the left who were campaigning to remain in the EU were somehow comrades in arms of the CBI and the Institute of Directors and Chancellor Osborne and Prime Minister Cameron. Um, but, you know, I... I respect and understand why sections of the left and the trade unions campaign to remain in the EU. They had a different outlook and a different assessment to the one that, that I was making back then. But I don't think either of us had uncomfortable bedfellows as such, unless we were appearing on the same platforms and making the same arguments. Our arguments against the EU went back to an iron Bevan, came up through Tony Benn, through the majority of the trade union movement at one time. Our arguments against EU membership were fundamentally different to those of the Brexit right, uh, the pro-Brexit right. I think one of the reasons why the Remain campaign lost was because they didn't articulate any kind of clear position about where we could go and what the future might hold inside the EU. Perhaps it would have been impossible for them to do that. And therefore, they did, by and large, across the spectrum of the Remain campaign, they did rather tend to concentrate on all the terrible things that were going to befall us should we, should we vote no in the referendum. So to some extent, they did share the same kind of negative arguments against leaving the EU, you know, if you remember, we were going to have um, famine, pestilence, flood and all the rest of it. Well, I suppose we've had a little bit of the flooding. Certainly we have where I live. Uh, and we've had the pestilence, although it's nothing whatsoever to do with, with Brexit. But, um, you know, if you recall, the shops were going to empty. We were going to be starved of food. Uh, there would have been no cross-fertilisation of entertainment and culture, possibly heading for civil war in Britain and, uh, you know, the, the predictions of doom, gloom and immediate recession uh, simply haven't come to pass. We've had, the, uh, we've had the, the COVID pandemic, of course, but all of those predictions have really amounted to very, very little. Uh, and I think people sense that. It, you know, it's no good The Guardian and others, other media outlets telling us how Britain is finished and it's wrecked and Wales is doomed and all the rest of it. People just don't feel that way. They know we've had a very, very difficult time, you know, it, during this pandemic and, and trying to come out of it. But um, the disaster we were told by everybody, big business, ex-military chiefs, top diplomats, all the mainstream political parties were all telling us what a disaster it was going to be from the day after we dared to vote. Uh, we dared to vote to leave the EU, and people know that this was nonsense, and it hasn't happened. Do you think your reason for voting leave is the same as the majority of people in Wales who voted leave? Do you think they? Were, what 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 do you think motivated that vote? Um, I, 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 I've got to be honest, I've studied the surveys that have been done since uh, 
since the referendum vote in, in 2016. I don't recall any really detailed survey with a big sample of why the people of Wales voted leave. I would suspect that the reasons were not significantly different to the ones across Britain as a whole. Uh, and there we do have the evidence of two very detailed surveys with very large samples of people conducted by the uh, Ashcroft polling organization uh, within, a, within weeks of the referendum. They polled 13,000 people across Britain, which is very large for a polling sample. Might not sound a great deal, of course, but it is. Most opinion polls are just a couple of thousand people. 13,000. The TUC in London also commissioned a fairly detailed survey. And what they both showed was that the by far the most significant reason in people's minds for voting leave was to regain sovereignty, to regain self-government, the power of self-government. Of course, there were other factors, some of them quite reactionary factors. Immigration was undoubtedly a fairly significant factor, but it was never the one cited by a majority of, of those, the two most detailed uh, polls. I would imagine that immigration would have been perhaps, if anything, even a slightly smaller factor in, in Wales than it was in, say, um, you know, some parts of England. I, I think it was the desire to regain decision-making powers over a large number of matters, big and small. Uh, and I was pretty confident, uh, uh, pretty comfortable with that. I believe in the right of nations to self-determination. I believe in the devolution of power. I think one of the benefits of the Brexit vote, which is rarely covered, uh, although the information exists in detail, the Cabinet Office, the Scottish Government have both published the framework analysis that's been drawn up by the Cabinet Office in London, which shows, for example, in Wales, as a result of Brexit, there should be 70 decision-making powers that will come directly to the Welsh Parliament and, uh, and government. Now, some of those are still under negotiation um, with, uh, um, with the Westminster government, which, of course, wants to hang on, wants to grab as many of those as possible. But we're talking fairly significant decision-making powers in some areas over public transport, over the environment, over agriculture and forestry, over um, uh, certain aspects of local government and so on. 70 new powers coming from Brussels to the Welsh Parliament and government. And of course, the odd thing is that uh, up until now, um, Welsh Labour, the Lib Dems, the Greens and Plaid Cymru, presumably would have, all, would have preferred all of these powers to remain in Brussels, an extraordinary position. Of course, the Conservatives want to see as many of those powers actually go from Brussels to London rather than to here. Scotland, incidentally, gets 111 new decision-making, up to 111. That battle is still going on to decide how many of those powers will actually end up here. But we need to be fighting that battle. This needs to be a public campaign. And I think it's been deliberately played down by the pro-EU uh, media in Wales and by the mainstream pro-EU political parties simply because they don't want people to realise the extent to which being out of the EU will mean that real decision-making powers will be coming 
to our Senate and our government uh, here in Wales. It's all well and good, I think, talking about the nature of the powers in the parliament. But do you think people feel more empowered? Do you feel that people feel that they've taken back control? No, not particularly. Not particularly because we, you know, it's true to say we haven't seen any great benefits coming from uh, from Brexit. For me, and I think for many others on the left, it was always a question of, you know, getting powers transferred from Brussels back to Wales and Britain was one thing, uh, an important precondition, if you like. But then what arises then is the absolute key question is what do we do with those powers? What should be done with those powers when they come back? Now, many of us fought hard for a left-led Labour government in the 2019 general election with some hope, let's say, rather than great confidence, but with some hope that a government led by Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell would use those uh, those repatriated powers to pursue all kinds of left and progressive policies. Um, that didn't happen, not least because of Labour's disastrous change of policy from respecting the referendum result, which was their position, of course, in the 2017 general election, to campaigning for a repeat referendum by the time of the 2019 general election and people like Macdonald and others making it quite clear that if we elected a left-led Labour government, that government would not just renegotiate um, the terms of withdrawal, they may have well have improved upon Boris Johnson's terms, but would then incredibly have not issued a recommendation to people in a second referendum to vote for them. And in fact, um, MacDonald and others made clear they would campaign against the new Brexit withdrawal terms. Uh, uh, they would campaign against them, even though that had now become the policy of their own government, which had negotiated them. Of course, this was nonsense. And that's why, and that's why Labour lost 52 leave voting Labour constituencies in 2019. So, no, that potential has not been fulfilled. But at least those powers are now back here in Britain and hopefully as many as possible, possible are here in Wales. And therefore, in a sense, a new phase of the political struggle has opened up as to how can these powers be used, you know, in the interests of the, the working class and the vast majority of the people. You mentioned Jeremy Corbyn. Were you surprised in 2016 when he came out as supporting Remain? I, I realised he was severely constrained by the official policy of the Labour Party. He was really in an almost impossible position. Uh, he had a long record, of, of course, of opposing the EU and membership of the EU for all of the same progressive left and internationalist reasons as uh, as many of us on the left, as a number of left-led trade unions, and and you know as as the Communist Party, um, so it was a great disappointment. I think at the very least, perhaps Jeremy should have insisted, because there were always people who wanted to sack him anyway, and it might have resulted in him being sacked. I think at the very least he should have insisted that in the 2016 referendum campaign the same um, procedures should have applied uh, as back in the original 1975 referendum campaign, where the leading figures in the Labour Party were free to campaign 
for whichever position they wished. Labour's policy back in uh, 1975, of course, originally had been to um, not to join the EU. Um, and therefore, the EU supporters were very keen to have that freedom of, uh, uh, of view and freedom of voice back in 75. Come 2016, everybody had to toe the, the pro-EU line. And um, that meant, Jeremy, I think perhaps he would have been better insisting, you know, that he was going to continue to speak out against EU membership for all the, the left reasons. Um, uh, and uh, I think, again, it's significant that the day after, when the referendum result was announced the day after the poll, and he said uh, Britain should now negotiate the terms of withdrawal and that the leave result must be respected, in other words, must be implemented. Of course, by the end of the following weekend, the Parliamentary Labour Party had voted uh, a vote of no confidence in him and sparked a second Labour leadership ballot all very divisive, uh, leading up, of course, to the 2017 general election, in which Jeremy's leadership of the Labour Party helped to ensure a significant advance for Labour in terms of its votes and seats on that platform of respecting the referendum result. But no, he was put in a very, very difficult position. I do respect that. We've never publicly, I don't mean the royal we, sorry, I mean the Communist Party, We've never attacked him publicly for that. But I think, especially, I suppose, with the benefit of hindsight, he should have, he should have put his foot down and said, uh, look, either you allow us freedom of conscience and allow me and others to campaign against continued EU membership, or you'll have to sack me. Um, it's quite clear, as I say, within days, it was quite clear that the majority of Labour MPs, pro-EU, of course, were quite prepared to sack him. It'd have been better if they'd tried that, you know, in the run-up to the referendum campaign, and then Jeremy would have been free to speak his mind. Um, so I think it's a great pity, and I think it compromised Jeremy, and some people on the left have drawn very unkind conclusions about him because of that, but I'm not in that camp. Proceed. Five years since the vote. Wales and England voted to leave. Scotland and Northern Ireland voted to remain. Do you think that the relationships between the countries of Britain and uh, the UK, of course, with Northern Ireland, are weaker than they were before? Uh, and how, what impact do you think the Brexit has had on the union? I think, I think the, the union is weaker. I don't shed any, you know, I don't shed any great waterfall of tears about that, by the way. I'm neither pro nor against the union in principle. For me, as a socialist and a communist, it's entirely a question of revolutionary strategy, whether it's strategically the best position for uh, for Wales to be uh, and Britain to be united in a union, um, or whether it would serve the interests of the of the struggle for socialism um, for separation to occur. But undoubtedly, the Brexit result has weakened the union um, because, um, as understandably, from their point of view. The SNP have made uh, have sought to make enormous political capital out of it, as if in some way it was in, invalid in Scotland, because the people of Scotland voted to remain, having rejected independence in their own referendum. The Scottish people had accepted 
prior to the referendum, the EU referendum vote, had accepted that uh, the union continued. And the vote in that 2016 referendum was whether the union of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland should leave or remain. And the majority voted leave. It, there wasn't a separate vote in Scotland as to whether Scotland should leave the EU. And the great irony, of course, is that the SNP proposes a model of Scottish independence, which would, um, if it were successful, would mean an enormous transfer of sovereign powers from Scotland back to Brussels and the European Commission and the European Central Bank. They won't say where they stand on the question of an independent Scottish currency. So presumably they would still be under the domination of the Treasury in London and the pound sterling and the Bank of England. And having changed their policy and done a somersault over the question of NATO membership, Scotland's foreign and defence policy would be dominated by NATO and the interests of the United States of America. But having said that, no, the, the union's been weakened. By the way, in respect of Northern Ireland, I'm all in favour of weakening the union between, um, between the countries of Britain and Northern Ireland. The partition of Ireland has been a, a, has been a near disaster um, for the peoples of Ireland from, any, from every community. And the sooner we can find a negotiated way to end that partition, the better. And of course, actually, what the, what the Brexit vote has done is to underline the nonsense of this partition line separating six counties of Ulster from the other three counties of Ulster and uh, the other four provinces of Ireland. Um, it's, made, it's made it look, uh, you know, to be the nonsense that it actually is. Interesting, I, I did a, a speaking tour of Ireland, north and south, shortly after the, refer the EU referendum result. And, uh, and there was a great deal of interest in Ireland because, of course, they have rejected various EU treaties in two referendums themselves. They were forced to run those referendums again, of course, till they came up with the only acceptable result to back the EU treaties. But there was always a great deal of anti-EU feeling in, in Ireland. And while I was over there, there was a major story in the Irish newspaper headlines whereby Jerry Adams, in effect, the, the, then the, the former leader of Sinn Féin, Jerry Adams, in, in effect, had said that um, the Brexit vote had a great benefit because it would underline the nonsense of partition. And therefore, he broadly welcomed the Brexit referendum result in Ireland. Well, of course, because Sinn Féin wanted to stir up as much trouble as possible uh, around the border uh, uh, and for Northern Ireland unionists who'd voted uh, leave, um, he was basically told to shut up. And within a few months, uh, he did shut up and he's never said anything like that since. But I know he said it. I was in Ireland when he said it. And if Brexit has exposed the nonsense that is the partition of Ireland, then I think that's actually one of the benefits of Brexit, as long as we can ensure that it leads to a negotiated, peaceful end to the partition. And of course, that, that will be some way off. But um, no, the union with Northern Ireland, I think, has been a great historical tragedy. The union with England and Scotland, I think, has uh, not largely been beneficial to Wales or to Scotland, for that matter. But it's a question of where we go from here. The unity of the Labour and progressive movements 
across Wales and England and Scotland has taken 150 years to build. And I think before we take the steps of dividing the political class struggle in Britain into three separate struggles, I think we ought to weigh up, you know, whether the prospects for three separate struggles actually justifies what would in effect put an end to the organised unity of the working class and progressive movements across England, Scotland and Wales. And I would say this to my plied friends, and I do have plied Cymru friends on the left in Wales. I, I think they really need to address this question. If they are on the left, if they are socialists, do they or do they not treasure the degree of working class unity that we have built up across England, Scotland and Wales? And do they think that the prize of separation here and now, not talking about the future, do they think that the prize of separation here and now is so great that it would justify, in effect, undermining that working class unity? Um, I don't think it is, although I do think we certainly need um, more substantial powers uh, devolved to Wales and we need a federal system in which the powers of, the, uh, Scot of Scotland and Wales are entrenched uh, constitutionally, in which those powers are substantial, uh, in which there is equality between the nations of England, Scotland and Wales, and in which there remains the possibility of the, all the people of Britain, the working class across Britain, including across Wales, including in London, for that matter, the, the possibility would remain that, that we can all get our hands on that enormous wealth that's been accumulated by a minority of people in the southeast of England, around the city of London, and redistributed across Britain. If Wales were to leave the Union, we will have given up any possibility of redistributing that enormous accumulated wealth stashed away in the city, stashed away in British-run tax havens around the world, I'm not prepared to give up that wealth because, you know, my parents and grandparents and their, and their parents, we've all helped to create that enormous wealth. You know, part of the fundamental redistribution of wealth that needs to occur, not just in Wales, but across Britain. I think we'll require united working class action and left governments, not only in Wales or Scotland, but in London as well, uh, in, in order to carry out that redistribution. There's virtually no basis for a redistribution of wealth that takes place entirely within Wales. We simply haven't managed to keep enough of that wealth and to reinvest enough of that wealth in, in, in our country because it's been robbed from us, but not robbed from us by ordinary English working class people, robbed by the British monopoly capitalist class, only a handful of whom, by the way, are Welsh. Rob, how do you think that future generations will look back upon the decision to leave the EU? Well, um, as you know, uh, as I think it was Chu Enlai said about the French Revolution when he was asked about it, you know, what's been the impact of the French Revolution on history? And um, about uh, uh, about 150 years later, he said, uh, "Well, it's too soon to tell." Um, I I can't. I really can't predict. I think. If we can, if we can build mass movements, and if we can elect left and progressive governments 
in uh, in Wales as well as in England and Scotland, if we can do that and we can carry out the radical changes that are necessary for our economic and social and cultural life, we will only be able to do that or we would be best placed to do that outside of the free market, big business, capitalist rules of, uh, of the EU. Uh, and therefore, if we can make great strides in that direction, I think people will look back on the Brexit vote and say, well, that helped to make it possible. If we don't make any significant progress, then it could be that the that the more fanatical end of the uh, of the pro EU movement will convince everybody that sooner or later it was going to be. I mean, they'll still be predicting imminent disaster in fifty years' time uh, if it hasn't happened. Um, that all of the you know the doom and gloom has either come to pass or is about to come to pass, and that almost overnight in two thousand and sixteen. Um, the working class people of England and Wales and Scotland turned into horrendous pro-conservative racists, you know, which is, again, complete nonsense. So I, I don't know how history may judge that because a lot depends on what we can do to change history between now and any vantage point in the future when people look back to 2016 and, and, and wonder whether it, it did lay the basis help to lay the basis for fundamental change in Britain and Wales or whether it, it, it didn't. Rob, I've got one last question for you. If the Brexit referendum had happened on the 23rd of June 2021, as opposed to the 23rd of June 2016, do you think that Wales and the UK would have still voted to leave? I suspect it, I suspect it would have because I, th I don't think the arguments have changed um, fundamentally. Uh, the EU is still the EU it's always been. The punishment beatings it handed out to the people of Greece and Cyprus and Portugal and Ireland were unforgivable, utterly anti-democratic, uh, and exposed the real character of the EU for anybody who was prepared to open their eyes and see it. Um, so I don't see any reason for changing my view. And I suspect for most people who voted leave, uh, they don't either. I also think if there if there were to be a second referendum, to their great credit, there there has always been a sizable section of opinion of people who voted remain, who nevertheless believe that the democratic result of a referendum should be honoured. Uh, unless it's a fascist referendum, I'll make an exception for that. But the democratic result should be honoured, uh, and there are still many people who voted Remain, who take that position. Uh, I enormously respect it. It doesn't mean that one has to stop uh, advocating um, returning to the EU, just as after 1975, um, many people continued to argue uh, that um, staying in the, going into the EU would turn out to be a big mistake. What I don't recall people who wanted to keep out of the EU in 1975 arguing was that the referendum was all of a sudden illegitimate, the tool of fascist dictators and all the rest of the nonsense that we've heard, and therefore the results should not be carried out. Um, I don't remember any great attempt to actually prevent the implementation of that result in 1975, and nor should there have been. We took the vote, it was agreed to remain, to join the EU, 
well, technically we'd already joined it two years previously, to remain in the EU. And as that was the way that people voted, I respected that result and believed that that had to remain the status quo. It doesn't stop people on either side of the arguments putting their case. And, and I think that's true about referendums when it comes to independence for Catalonia or for Scotland, uh, or whether it's the referendum we've just had. Results must be respected, and that can only mean they must be implemented, but people should retain their right to speak as they feel and to advocate whichever position they believe in. But no, I don't think things have changed uh, so significantly at all that the result would be any different if we were to have another referendum. Robert Griffiths, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Hiraith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.